Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope that this message from Pastor Jason Charles and the City Collective team challenges and inspires you. Enjoy. Good morning. How is everyone doing? I know I'm doing very well. I had the privilege of uh, seeing my Calgary Flames last night at the Rogers Arena lay a pretty good beat down on your Vancouver Canucks. You know what? There's a lot of things that I'm adopting since the moving to Lower Mainland. Kombucha, um, poke bowls, like good things. The Vancouver Canucks are not a good thing, so I choose to, to not adopt that one. But I'm excited to be here. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. We're so glad that you're able to be here with us this morning. Uh, wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, not really sure what you think about this whole God thing or what this faith thing even means to you, I'm just glad that you're here, and I hope that you felt warm and welcome in uh, every interaction this morning. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling The F Word, and it is talking about all things forgiveness, because forgiveness is one of those conversations that we are constantly confronted with whether we recognize it or not. We've all got different things in our lives that we are carrying, that we need forgiveness for, that we need forgiveness from, that we are struggling to even deal with. And so this is a conversation that thus far has been so healthy for us as a community. Uh, so thank you for those of you who have been willing to engage in the conversation of forgiveness, who have taken some steps towards reconciliation with people, that have exposed yourself in some incredible ways that has been maybe difficult to deal with. It was Jesus. <laughs> and there's a lot of different conversations that have come out of this, so thank you for engaging with that. But to, today, uh, this marks week three of our series. Let me give you a little bit of a recap. In week one, we talked about what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. And forgiveness isn't for them, but forgiveness is a decision to begin a process, to, to step into that. And then this past week, we talked about the idea of unforgiveness and how we carry unforgiveness for others, unforgiveness for ourselves, and even unforgiveness for God, and how we're constantly invited to just let that go to set it down, to begin that process in a really practical, tangible way. We talked about one of the ways that you can do that is even just taking a piece of paper, writing down uh, someone's name, why you felt hurt, why it was continuing to impact you, and doing that through a bunch of different things and, and doing something as practical as burning it, as burying it, as, as keeping it away. But that physical, tangible action of what we do in forgiveness, that it isn't just a high-minded concept that we can't really tangibly deal with, but it's something that we're invited to on a basis to do more than simply just think about. And so today, what we're going to be engaging with is the idea of revenge and how revenge is something that we often defer to. So I'm going to read a couple scriptures before we jump into things. Uh, Proverbs 24 verse 29 says this. It says, do not say I'll do to them as they've done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. 1 Peter 3.9 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Let me ask you a question. Um, 
Have you ever been unfairly treated? I think we can all say, no, never, of course not. <laughs> never been unfairly treated. I've, I've lived a perfect existence with perfect people all around me, and everyone has treated me perfectly. I think we've all experienced unfairness at some point. But what has that hurt or that treatment led you to desire? Let me tell you a story, uh, and it's a story in the Bible, and it's the, in the book of Judges, and it's about a character named Samson. And everyone has this idea about this guy named Samson, specifically around the story that happens a little bit later about Delilah, about a great head of hair, and a heroic act that kind of happens at the end, and, and a, a lot of questions that are asked in between, and, and a lot of naps that took place, and everyone kind of has an idea around this story of Samson. But I want to go a little bit farther back to Judges chapter 14 and 15. Because there's, there's the story of Samson before the whole Delilah incident, where he, he falls in love with a Philistine woman, or he makes a decision he wants to be with a Philistine woman. And he shows up to his, his Jewish parents, and he says, hey, I, I, found, I found a girl, I want to get married, I want to be with her. And they're like, well, can't you find a nice Jewish girl? And he's like, no, 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 I'm set on this, I'm set on this, this is what I want to do. And they make some decisions, and they eventually buy in. They say, okay, we will support you in this. And so they start to plan for the wedding. And as part of their plan for the wedding, they, they throw a giant festival or an event to celebrate the impending nuptials. And a part of the tradition at the time was that the bride's family provided a, a group of men to be a part of the groom's party. And so there was about 30 men that was then hanging out with, with Samson. And so there's a couple things that happen for Samson as he's on his way to this to this uh, event that's about to take place. There's a lion, there's some honey. That's a whole different story that we can talk about, but this weird thing takes place in this moment. And he shows up at this event, and Samson gets this, this great idea that what he wants to do is, is share a, a joke, a, a riddle with the group. And what he says to them, he's like, I'm going to give you a riddle. And if you get the riddle, you have to give me 30 fine linen clothes. Uh, pieces of clothing, outfits. And if I win, you have to give me 30 fine linen outfits. Fine linen outfits, all the rage in the ancient Middle East. And so he tells this riddle based upon his experience on the road, and it's an impossible riddle. There's only one person that would know the, the solution to this riddle, and that would have been him. He, he's telling a, a bad joke in a way. And so these men, they go, they go away, and they spend days trying to figure it out, and they're not even close to it. And so they approach their, their sister or their, the woman that was about to marry Samson, and they say to her, we need you to do whatever you can do to figure out the answer to this riddle. We don't have 30 fine linen outfits to give to him. We just thought we were going to get the riddle, and then we would get the good stuff. And if you don't do this, consequences will be in place for you and your family. 
So in fear, she says, okay, okay, I'll, I'll figure it out. And so she approaches Samson, and she goes through the process of asking hard questions and seeing if she can find it out, and Samson says no. And the Bible's really dramatic about it. So she, like, weeps about it and asks for days on end until Samson finally caves, and he just gives her the answer. She relays that answer to the group of men. They relay the answer to Samson, and Samson is not a happy individual when he finds out that they know the answer to his impossible question. He does not respond particularly well to the situation. So he gets the, the response from them, has a retort, and then he goes down to the village nearby, kills 30 Philistines, takes their fine linen outfits, and gives it to them. And then he proceeds to leave the wedding that was about to take place, and he didn't return. He returns not too long after. It says that it returns a season later. And what happens is he shows up at the door expecting his quote-unquote wife to be waiting for him with bated breath because he's Samson with great hair. And, and he shows up at the door and the family's like, what are you talking about? She, she married someone else. And, and the Bible says, it uses the word nakah, which means blameless because Samson says, now you've done it. Now I am justified in what I'm about to do. And in great anger, he responds poorly all over again. So what he does, he goes and finds uh, 300 foxes. Now, I don't know where he got these foxes. <laughs> cool that he got 300 foxes. <laughs> and he ties their tails together, 150 pairs, torches to the tails, and sets them loose in the fields around the village or the town, and he burns down all of the grain, all the, all the shops, all the, the vineyards in the area, and completely devastates the village. In response, the men that had been a part of the situation prior, they're angry and they're upset, and so what do they do? They go to the home of the woman that they blame for bringing Samson into the town, and they burn that house down with her, her now husband, and her father in it. Samson is upset. Samson goes from there, well, then from there, Samson goes, and he goes and kills every single one of those men. In response, the Philistines, they raise an army, and the Philistine army plans to go to war with Judah. And Judah says, we don't want to go to war. Take Samson. <laughs> they tie him up. They give him to the Philistines. And then when Samson's with them, he breaks free from his bonds, finds the jawbone of a donkey, and kills a thousand men. This is a dramatic story. And I think we can say that Samson is not a stable individual. <laughs> Samson's got some problems. But I, th I find this, this story fascinating because a thousand men ended up dead because of a bad joke. Samson goes as far, so he, he feels very justified in this, and he goes as far and he writes this little poem to memorialize this day, and he says, With the donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Kind of a rhyme. 
and it's a long and it's an embarrassing tale. But I think part of the larger story with Samson is God's ability to use this horrible person, to be honest, to do an incredible redemptive act later on. But I think Samson really does sum up the story in his feeling of justification for his action. Because he basically says, I only did to them what they did to me. Revenge, it captures our imagination. It, in many ways, we have this natural desire for revenge. Now, I'm going to make the wild assumption that none of you have caught 300 foxes and have tied their tails together and set them loose in a field to burn grain, field, vineyards. I'm assuming no one's done that one. And I'm assuming that no one's killed anyone with the jawbone of a donkey, let alone a thousand. But I might also wager a guess that a couple of us, a few of us, maybe all of us, have said to ourselves something to the effect, I only did to them what they did to me. And as absurd as the story of Samson is, I think we're meant to hear the words of Samson in our own mouth. Because think about what this story walks us through. Samson tricks his neighbors into a riddle that they can't solve, so they trick him by exhorting an answer from his soon-to-be wife. Angry, he leaves before the marriage. Hurt, she marries someone else. He burns down the fields. They They murder his estranged wife. He murders them back. They raise an army, and he proceeds to outdo anything that happens at the Spartan Pass, and he kills a thousand men. And it all starts with a bad joke. What this story is about is that revenge escalates. One of the most powerful feelings that we can have as a human is when someone gets what is coming to them. We have this natural desire for revenge, and this isn't just theoretical, it's this biological truth. There was a study done in 2018 that focused on a particular area of the brain, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, and what that area does, it inhibits our feeling of pain and distress. And so what they did is they introduced the opportunity for revenge in their experiment, and they found that the participants actively recruited that part of the brain more often when revenge was inflicted. And these findings, they suggested that the more we seek to suppress our sting of rejection, the sweeter we actually find revenge. And in reality, We believe that the sweetness of revenge is actually an indicator of justice. That if it feels good, it must be right. It made me feel better in the moment, so I must have done the right thing. Saying to ourselves, I find this revenge to be sweet because justice is served. Think of the last movie you watched. And it doesn't matter what movie you're thinking about, I can probably guarantee that at some point in the movie, there's this moment of justice or vindication that felt right or maybe made you feel a little uncomfortable with how okay you felt about that action. The narrative of revenge that follows Anakin to Darth Vader. The narrative of of John Wick 1 that somehow becomes John Wick 2. And then Taken 1 two, and then they didn't figure it out, and they did three as well. Or maybe like the most popular of 
the revenge statements that I'll toss up on the screen right now, if we can toss that up, out of The Princess Bride. And that's revenge. <laughs> and that's what we, and, and we feel okay with that. It, it, it makes us laugh. It, it feels somewhat normal. Why do we love these things? Yes, it's a funny moment, but it also feels like it has this sense of justice to it. We want the hero to get even. We want the villain to pay for their crimes. And the problem with the story of Samson shows us that revenge is never simply an eye for an eye. It's never a tooth for a tooth. It's never simply an, a life for a life. Revenge is always justice plus one. You hurt me and I hurt you back plus one. Now not only are you hurt, but there's this perceived imbalance and it's you hurt me and I hurt you and now I owe you plus two. And on and on till a bad joke ends up with a thousand men dead. That is the story of revenge. And even as I was thinking through this concept of revenge this week, I had a, I had a tough time letting go of justifying revenge in certain scenarios because we have these experiences where revenge feels right. Like it almost feels needed, as if it's okay. But consider this. This might be the most understandable of moments for revenge, but let's, let's see how we respond to it. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, some Jewish groups could not simply accept the justice of the Nuremberg trials. So there was a couple that popped up, and one in particular was called the Nakam, and they were known as the Jewish Avengers, and they set about assassinating Nazi war criminals as retribution for the Holocaust. Now, about 60 members of the SS force were in Germany at the time, and they allegedly poisoned 3,000 loaves of bread, which were to be sent to them, and then some 1,900 of those prisoners had arsenic poisoning, and about 400 of them died as a result. Now, the Nakam admitted this. This is what they said. They said, this was nothing compared with what we really wanted to do. More brutally, we intended to kill six million Germans by poisoning the water supplies of Berlin, of Munich, of Nuremberg, and Hamburg in order to murder as many civilians as Jews were slaughtered during the Holocaust. Revenge is always justice plus one. And it never ends. And it always escalates. But, now we're talking about revenge in real life, where we're not probably talking about burning down fields or poisoning loaves of bread or murdering families. This is just generally not the world that we live in on a day-to-day -day basis. But we're talking about something like returning a cold shoulder with the silent treatment or responding to an embarrassing disclosure with more gossip or being spoken cruelly to and re returning it with a cruel word. All kinds of small but deeply injuring acts that we play out with this hostile strategy in real life. And we desire fairness in some ways. But your desire for fairness in a situation where you've been harmed is actually a desire to pass hurt forward. The idea of forgiveness seems completely impossible when all you can think about is un how unfairly you've been, in, you've been treated and how much you want revenge. 
So I want to talk today about ways in which we can defuse the natural instinct toward revenge and what Jesus actually exemplifies for us. There's three ways that I want to talk about it. And the first way is we need to humanize people. See, humans, they act in unhealthy, hurtful ways out of two places in particular. Fear and insecurity. Fear of being rejected, insecurity of not being accepted, and too often the manner in which we operate on a day-to-day basis, the way that we make decisions in our interactions, in our relationships, in our families, we make it from this place of fear and insecurity. That is our foundation. And now this can look differently for different people, but often the most put-together, confident of individuals are the ones that have the most fear and insecurity. That foundation is not the desire of God for your life or for my life. That isn't the way that he sees you. That isn't the way he knows you, and he doesn't, that isn't the way he wants you to know yourself. But that is also the way that he doesn't want you to know the people around you because our revenge is so easily justified when we associate a person with their action rather than being a person. When someone has anger and hate in their heart towards someone, what they often feel is they see and they look at that person and they associate that person as their anger and as their hate. And when you see a person as such, it is impossible to even consider the idea of forgiveness. We need to humanize people if we want to move past the idea of revenge and move towards the idea of reconciliation. He does this over and over and over again in our story. Jesus comes into it, and he doesn't identify us by our sin and our mistake, but he identifies us by the name that he gives us as a child of God, as beloved, as known, as seen, as the person that receives grace. And he identifies us as this, and he keeps us as this human being rather than the sin or the mistake that is committed. And this is what we so often struggle with and is why revenge escalates over and over again because we can't see the person on the other side. We can't see the fear and insecurity that they're operating out of. We need to humanize people by understanding that the actions that they're taking are often born out of a place of fear and insecurity, the very thing that's leading you to act in the way that you're acting in this moment. We need to humanize people. To, hu- to dehumanize someone is to stop thinking about the person behind the action and to only think of them as the thing that they did to you. Once we dehumanize, revenge comes very easily. But once we humanize people, forgiveness is so possible. Forgiveness is just on the other side of understanding that you are encountering and you are engaging with a person. Because we can all resonate with the idea of fear and insecurity. And understand how that leads us and how that changes us and how that actually pushes us farther and farther away of who Christ wants us to be and closer to our sin and our our mistakes and our failures and it makes us identify with those things over and over and over again. So the first step to diffuse revenge is to see a person as a human being driven by the same fear and insecurity that wants you to lash out in kind. 
Second thing that we need to understand is that hurt is always subjective. Which is why when someone says that you have hurt them, you don't get to say that you didn't. You might disagree with their assessment. You might want to explain your motivations. You may even choose to stand by your decision as you did when you hurt them. But you don't get to say that they are not hurt because hurt is always personal. It's always subjective. And if we're going to foster healthy relationships for any length of time, you're going to have to understand this. Five or six years ago, Derek and I, we went on a trip to New York, and it was a great trip. At least I felt it was a great trip. And then we got on the airplane to get there, and I had a couple things I wanted to get off my chest because I wanted to enjoy the rest of that trip. And I communicated while sitting on the airplane, and I I felt great. Like, I got it off my chest, felt really good about it, was really stoked for the trip afterwards, had an amazing time. I found out a couple months later that that conversation kind of ruined a portion of the trip for Derek. Because the things that I'd said, whether they were right, whether they were wrong, I do not particularly remember, but it made him feel a certain way. Because hurt is subjective. And the problem with hurt being subjective and our tendency towards revenge is that your experience of a situation is often not reflective of the reality of the action. When someone does something to you and your response is revenge, you're not responding to the action, you're responding to the way it made you feel. You're responding to the hurt. And this is why it is always justice plus one. Because it always hurts more. Especially if it lingers past five minutes, that if you get one night to think upon that hurt, to have the thoughts played out in your mind, it will escalate to the point where it is no longer about separating a person from the idea of the action, but it's so much more than that. It becomes the way that we actually think about them all the time. We need to understand the hurt. It means that when we are the ones who've been hurt, our perception of how deep the offense has gone is never objective enough to deal out an appropriate response. Revenge is actually taking this ball of hurt that you have on the inside of you that you've been carrying around and trying to recreate that inside someone else's chest. And it's harsh. But the the reality is, is you can't. Your hurt is personal. And their subjective experience of it is, is, is theirs. So measuring and creating and trying to transfer suffering is a myth. There is no way for you to make them hurt in the way you do. It doesn't work, and it ends up in escalation. We need to understand that. And the third thing, hurt is never isolated. The manner in which we feel in a moment is never isolated to just us and the other person. 
It impacts the people around us. It impacts our friends. It impacts our family. It extends past the moment. Hurt isn't isolated. But the beauty of this is also the fact that because hurt isn't isolated, reconciliation is also not isolated. That healing is not isolated. That forgiveness is not isolated. That your story of conflict between you and another person, or maybe even just you and yourself, is not isolated to just the specific situation in the specific moment, but it can be a spark for healing all around you, for hope all around you, for reconciliation to be an example for the other people around you to follow suit. So we, we need to humanize people around us. We need to understand that hurt is subjective. And we got to see the opportunity that hurt doesn't happen in isolation. Because Jesus, he invites us to move past our natural propensity for revenge and into reconciliation. He wants us to find rest in that. Not simply in a spiritual high-minded sense, but one that we get to enjoy day in and day out. Not simply suppressing that sting of rejection through revenge. That's not the model of Jesus. He wants us to actually feel it. When we try and suppress those feelings of hurt because it hurts too much to feel it, to feel how close it is. It doesn't just dissipate and fall away. It lingers in such a way that it motivates us to this place of revenge. Because revenge, it sounds like one thing and then it looks like another. It can sound like a good idea and then when it actually happens around us, we are mortified at what it looks like. But I'm so thankful that we don't serve a God who's in a place of repayment, of simply intention, or simply fairness. If he did, we would be beyond help. He operates from a place of pure love and pure forgiveness. Grace is this completely new concept for us to grasp that sounds great when we talk about all of our mistakes not being held against us, but it's also not the things that we do well. That, that not, neither of those things matter. That he just comes as he is, and he invites us in this story of reconciliation so that we can understand how forgiven that we are so that we don't have to operate from this natural place of revenge that we seem to lean towards. So all three of those things about not dehumanizing others, about understanding that it, it is subjective and understanding it's not isolated is exemplified by Jesus in one particular moment. In Luke chapter 23, verse 24, he is on that cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He, he chooses in that moment not to associate mankind with the sin that he was taking upon himself. He chose in that moment to simply recognize that they are struggling in their fear and in their insecurity. So forgive them. That they are treating me from a place of hurt and a place of, of pain. So forgive them that they have felt so isolated and separated from me for so long, so just forgive them. In 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, it says this, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is why forgiveness is so hard. This is why I will never judge anyone who's struggling with the idea of forgiveness. Because revenge is when you take your pain and you pass it to someone else and you say, I want you to feel what you made me feel. But forgiveness is when you hold that pain so close to you, so tight to you, that you disarm it of its power and you rob it of its potency. And when we operate from a place of reconciliation instead of revenge, we won't just change our families and our friendships and our relationships around us, but we will change the world. It changes everything when we operate from that place of reconciliation, understanding that reconciliation, it bridges relationships that we thought were lost. It follows the example of Jesus. And this isn't just his brilliant idea that he communicates before the cross. That he, on the cross, is the example of what forgiveness looks like. That he takes the worst that we could possibly do to him. That we humiliate him. That we hang him on that cross. That we pound nails into his hands and into his feet. And we nail him on that cross. And he still says, Father, forgive them because they don't understand what they do. They don't get it because they're still afraid. They can't make sense of grace because they're so insecure. And they can't comprehend forgiveness because they have been passing pain from generation to generation. That they have executed revenge from generation to generation. So even if it takes the divine son of God stepping into the story of humanity to absorb the hurt, the sin, the shame, and take it all upon himself and experience the brokenness of the world and refuse to hand it back, that's what he does. That is the length that grace will travel to save you. That is the length that grace will travel to save us from ourselves. May you know today that Christ has absorbed the sin of the world and refused to give it back. That is a gift that we have been given, not just to receive for ourselves, but to model in every situation that we enter that he took our very worst and said immediately, forgive them. Because I want to know them. This wasn't an absent, high-minded, separate God that said, forgive them and they can stay over there. He said, forgive them and draw them near. Because that is reconciliation at its finest. Revenge, it rejects and it pushes away. Reconciliation accepts and it draws you close. This is the story of Jesus. That on the cross, at the worst moment, he still chose forgiveness. And he says, watch what happens when you choose forgiveness for yourself. When you choose not to let the hurt that you have experienced to define you, to own you, to motivate you, to found you, and you choose instead to see the grace and forgiveness that I have given to you and lay that as your foundation from which to live your life. You are not past the point of all hope. 
healed and forgiven. Look where my chains are now. That is his story for us. May you remember that you will find your humanity when you refuse to dehumanize someone else. May you feel your pain and know that it is real and recognize that you can never truly pass it on to someone else. But instead, may you welcome God to be present with you in it. For his love to come so near to you that the hurt that you're carrying is no longer simply your burden to carry, but one for him to carry with you. If you hold it close, if you hold it tight, it's hard. And it reminds us of the mistakes and the pain of the past. But you don't have to hold it alone. You don't have to hold it in isolation. You get the opportunity to invite him into every moment. He isn't far. He's right there. Hands out saying, just give me a little bit of that hurt. Let me make you feel a little lighter. I want you to know me as I know you. Forgiveness is possible for everyone here. And perhaps the idea of revenge for you seems to only work with another person in the equation. But I think revenge is one of those things that we can actually inflict upon ourselves. That revenge is not about the direction of the action. Revenge is simply justice plus one. So you can do that to yourself. You could be living day in, day out, forcing yourself to feel the pain that you feel like you deserve, and it's escalating every day. I didn't hurt enough yesterday for the mistake that I made, so I need to hurt more today. Revenge might be our natural inclination but grace is his true invitation to us. For yourself, for others, and for every moment when we fall short. Let's pray together. Father, these hard conversations that we're having, these moments that are exposing us in ways that are unexpected and we're unsure about. I pray that there's just healing in this room. That if revenge has been acted out, help us to understand that there's no shame and guilt associated with that. But forgiveness from you that invites us into a new story. And if there's anybody here this morning that is, is struggling with the idea of forgiveness because they, they've never experienced it, they've never seen it, they've never been around it because they don't know you. The idea of God 
who came to us to experience our very worst, to take upon himself the sin of all mankind, and to still say, I forgive you. Not simply so he can then go back to heaven and do his own thing, but so that he could have relationship. For, so for anyone this morning, that perhaps you don't know this Jesus that we're talking about, or you've stepped away, or this isn't just a part of your life right now, let me invite you that the hurt that you're carrying right now is so, that's so binding you in this moment, that's holding you down, that you feel so overwhelmed by. Jesus wants to take it in a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you through it. And he's saying, just let me in. Let me come close. For forgiveness and unforgiveness that's ruminating in our hearts. For every person that's gone through a conversation this week, let not revenge be our natural path, but let us lean into that place of how we can discover reconciliation. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not just tell us the way, but you showed us the way. May we know you in a deeper way. May we discover forgiveness in such a way that it transforms our lives and our interactions. I pray for those this morning that are struggling with forgiving themselves. That you are so quick to name yourself by your mistake and it's so difficult for you to name yourself by the things that God calls you. Your mistake is not your identity. Your hurt is not your identity. Your offense is not your identity. You are being invited right now into reconciliation with God and even with yourself. That you might see yourself as he sees you. that he's not executing revenge upon you for your mistakes. But before you did anything, you were forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forevermore forgiven. Because that is who he is. For those this morning that are struggling with the idea of forgiving someone else and they feel like this might not be the right time, I just pray that you give them so much grace in this moment, so much comfort, through this process that they have to go through. Courage to have the conversations that they need to have. An understanding of what is actually going on on the inside of them so they can deal with it in a way that is honoring to you. But more than anything, to just help them to know that they are forgiven to, be, to forgive others. Forgiven people learning what it means to forgive. Thank you for all that you're doing in our community and in our lives. Thank you that forgiveness is going to be so core to all that we are. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope you enjoyed that message. Please subscribe to stay up to date with every weekly message. For more information on City Collective, please visit www.citycollective.com. Or, if you're in the greater Vancouver area, come visit us for a Sunday. 
You can find more about our church and how you can get involved with what God is doing in the Lower Mainland. Have a great day.